You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras Angels Edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand recently sat down with Angels General Manager Billy Epler to discuss his career, what he learned from Brian Cashman and the Yankees, and the secret to dealing with the media. Here's Mark. So, Bill, you pitched for UConn before a shoulder injury ended your playing career. Had you had aspirations of a professional career before the injury? Yeah, I mean, I did. I had uh, it on my goal sheet when I was, I wrote this goal sheet when I was about 17 years old. and had a, a lot of things on it um, that I wanted to do in my life. I guess, you know, they, they ended up making a movie, uh, you know, of that with called The Bucket List. But but I had that, um, and it was something I I you know, kept in my, at that time in my high school bedroom and then in my dorm room at college. And I had it up on the wall and on it was to, to be a professional baseball player. Um, and, uh, yeah, I did not get that, uh, that opportunity. I was not able to, to, to check that box. And it's, uh, you know, would I have been drafted had I stayed healthy? Who knows? Probably not. Probably would have been, a, you know, your typical senior sign and maybe gotten a half of a season or a season and a half out of it, and then that would have been about it. So yeah, I I, I was a I became a pretty good self evaluator at about age twenty when you, you jump into a bigger pond, and uh, and that hits you in the face. But yeah, I, I wanted to, and I didn't get that opportunity. After you graduated from UConn, you interned with the Washington Redskins. Mm-hmm. Was there any thought to pursuing a career as a football executive? I, I kicked it around, um, and uh, my my best friend's father um, and. Uh, you know, somebody that I, I grew up with, and it was Ernie Zampezi, uh, the offensive coordinator in the in the NFL, and um, and his, uh, you know, just just growing up around that environment, I knew I wanted a, a career in professional sports, and then as I remember talking to Ernie, he said, you know, if you can get yourself in the door in, in baseball, um, because you have more playing experience and and kind of, you know, institutional knowledge or, or general knowledge of the game. Um, you might be able to 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 do a little bit more, um, but uh, I I had that conversation with him, and you know, watching as a very young child, you know, age seven, age eight, age nine, going to training camp and spending two weeks at training camp when he was the offensive coordinator of the Chargers, and we'd be at UC San Diego is where they used to have their their training camp, and I, you know, one of my best memories of my life was a two hand touch football game. Dan Fouts, Kellen Winslow against me and and John Zampezi, and you know, we're we're playing, you know, and, and running around the the fields in between the dorm rooms and so on and so forth. And those are great memories. And just watching how intense, um, how involved, um, and 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 just you know the passion that Ernie had. Um, I I knew I wanted to do something in sports. We saw Paul DePodesta make a jump from baseball to the NFL. He's been the chief strategy officer for the Browns for the last 14, 15 months. Do you think that could become a trend where executives jump from one sport to another, or do you think he's a unique case? It's hard to say. I, I, think, I think to think of that as something that would become more mainstream is, is kind of difficult to wrap my head around. Um, but I can understand, you know, strategy... Um, has some parallels, uh, you know, and, and, and it has some parallels kind of across, you know, across sport. But, um, you know, I think that, that there might be instances where, you know, people that are executives within those industries, 
might not really look or be open-minded or willing to, to do that because there's some risk involved. Absolutely, there's risk involved. But, um, you know, I, I don't think we've seen the last of it, but I'm, I'm not sure that I would, I would say it would be commonplace. How'd you land your first job in baseball? Um, I landed it with the Colorado Rockies, um, actually. Damon Oppenheimer, um, who, you know, my family has known for a long time. Um, our fathers actually ran Chevron gasoline stations together. And um, Damon um, and I, you know, got to know each other through his mom, actually, Priscilla Oppenheimer, who worked for the San Diego Padres. And Priscilla uh, set up a, a meeting for Damon and I, and we met. And Damon said, you know, I, I have a, a friend of mine um, that just landed the scouting director job in Colorado, and he might be looking for some guys. Um, and so I interviewed with Bill Schmidt uh, with the Colorado Rockies, was the, the scouting director for a job as a Northeast Area Scout. And um, I did not get the job. Um, he went, uh, Providence College at that moment uh, folded their baseball program. And so he went with one of the coaches from Providence College that, you know, was uh, out of work from, at least from coaching, and knew the area, knew the lay of the land way better than I, than I did. I didn't know the Northeast that well. Even though I went to school in that area, I didn't know the Northeast. Right. Um, and so uh, when Bill Schmidt called me um, and told me that he was going a different direction, you know, I was really disappointed. And, and maybe he heard the disappointment in my voice. I'm not sure. But he said, you know, I, I do have something I might be able to give you. It would be $5,000 for the year. Um, it would be as an associate scout or part-time, part-time scout, I think technically is what the contract read. It would be as a part-time scout and you can scout Southern California and so on and so forth. And it's an opportunity for you, but I know it's not a lot of money and, and whatever, but, but you know, you have energy, you have passion. So I'm throwing it your way. And I accepted right there on the phone, said, I'm in no matter what. So I stayed in my my mom's house in San Diego. Uh, it was in the bedroom that I grew up in. And um, there you go, 20, 22, maybe just had turned 23, and uh, kind of off and running and just was at games all the time and um, ran with it, and it turned itself into a full-time job about six months later. They hired me, so I didn't even really see the end of that that five thousand dollar a year contract, which after tax was like one hundred and thirty three bucks every two weeks showed up wow. in the mail. So it was good. I had an, I had to get an extra job. Yes. I was going to say I yes. can't imagine even living at home. Even I living can't at home, I had, that was enough. I had no rent, but I did have a car payment and car insurance and things like that. So yeah, I had some. Uh, you know, I could I could live fairly cheap, and that's exactly what I what I did. So you, you know? had to get to the game somehow, right? I had to get to the games. Yeah, Nissan Maxima. Wow, that's great. <laughs> You moved on to the Yankees in 2005, uh, mm-hmm. right? 2005? Yeah, 2005. Uh, you worked in the Tampa office. At yeah. that time, the New York office and the Tampa office were two essentially different operations. Um, Brian Cashman, I believe a year after you got there, mm-hmm. uh, was given full control of the entire operation and turned it into a more cohesive unit. How important was that for the organization to come together in that? In that sense, it's extremely important. Um, you know, it's it's where the the right hand knows what the left hand's doing, and 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 there's just synchronicity. And I think that was that was one of the things that that Cash was was doing was trying to streamline a process, um, a process that that encompassed the major league operations, the player development, the international scouting, the domestic amateur scouting, the professional scouting, the you know player performance or sports medicine so on and so forth, um, and, and just connect some, some of the front office and was successfully, was able to do that successfully. And, 
and and put together just a very thorough and kind of well-rounded process um, in New York and to, and to, to be there you know, on the on the, the you know the ground floor and, and watch that happen and watch that that get constructed uh, as effectively as it's been constructed was um, was really good and that you know it was almost a byproduct of being over there is to watch you know an organization be be built for lack of a better word, um, be built as, as one unit. And so that was very, very good learning moments for me, even though, you know, you weren't aware of those learning moments at the time, but as you kind of look back or take a 40,000 foot view, you see how that construction happened and, uh, and the effectiveness of it. So Brian Major, the director of pro scouting and in that job, you helped recommend signings of guys like Bartolo Colon, Freddie Garcia, uh, Eric Chavez, Andrew Jones, Russell Martin. These guys were all under the radar signings at the time. They weren't the big free agents. Uh, you know, they all made significant contributions in New York. Is there something satisfying when you can sort of identify and single out a player that other people are either overlooking or uh, you know, or not looking at at all in some cases, uh, and and having that move pay off the way that those, that those moves did? I mean, absolutely. You know, when you when you talk about moves that are made, and you start talking about the high value contracts, so on and so forth. Do you play a part in those? Absolutely. But do you have a little bit more ownership in something that might be a, a non-roster invite or be coming in as a, as a minor league, um, you know, as a, a, on a minor league contract? Uh, or if it's a guy that, you know, a small trade, whether it was, you know, the, the trades that our, our pro scouting group, you know, did for the, the Hairston and Hinsky and, and, and that population of guys. I mean, those were, those are extremely satisfying from a morale and an organizational standpoint, because you have the analytics department and the pro scouting department and the front office kind of all intertwined in this, uh, you know, in this process. And so it's a, it's a very feel good moment for the organization, just as, you know, a Phil Hughes or a Jabba Chamberlain or an Ian Kennedy as guys, kind of Brett Gardner, as guys evolved through a system, David Robertson, that's a very good feeling for your domestic amateur group, your player development group, as well as your front office and, and everybody that, 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 you know, plays a part in that. And your pro scouts evaluating your players as they're coming up the system. And so you have a number of departments kind of all working together. I mean, those are those are the most rewarding times. They absolutely are. I mean, it's easy enough to say, "Hey, we should sign CC Sabathia or Mark Teixeira." Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could do that. I mean, you have two. You have two groups involved in, in those types of things. You know, you obviously have your front office and your and your pro scouting group. You know, and analytics, and and so I guess you know three groups there. But ultimately, I mean, th- those are decisions that that Brian has to talk to ownership about and right. say, "Hey, look, this is this is going to be sizable here, but this has got a chance to push us over the top." And I mean, I remember going through the CC the CC process. We were at 26 of his 33 or 34 starts that year when he got traded Cleveland and Milwaukee. We were we were at 26 of them, and I was like, "Well, everybody knows CC Sabathia is good." It's like, at the end of the day, you are, you know, a vehicle to provide comfort for your ownership, right? And so our scouts and the scouting reports, as well as the analytic reports, and all of that evidence and all of that work is there to provide comfort for a decision that is going to be monumental. And so you do it, even though, you know, everybody at, you know, every, everybody around, around baseball could sit there and go, hey, CC Sabathia is one of the best, if not the best pitcher in baseball right now. No doubt. People could do that, but it was trying to forecast and understand exactly what you're investing in. The Yankees are obviously a big market team. The Angels are a big market team. 
but is it necessary to find guys like the ones I mentioned, the Colones, the Garcias, the Chavez's, to balance out some of the big contracts that you also have? Absolutely. I mean, not everybody, not everybody around around the organization can can do the, uh, or you know, not everybody around the field can can be the twenty million dollar uh, twenty million dollar player. You're gonna run, you're gonna run thin at some point, um, and so. Having those players, whether they're grown organically and come through your farm system, or whether they're guys that you grab on a minor league deal and then they make the club and they're they're making eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, even if they're making three and a half million dollars, having those those pieces um, is very important for for the health and it allows maneuverability on other things. So, you know, if you have more players playing at at you know pre you know pre free agent prices it just allows you to maybe play on a bigger free agent when that opportunity comes or multiple free agents when that opportunity comes you were a finalist for GM jobs in Anaheim Seattle and San Diego before ultimately getting the Angels job the second time second time yeah uh, what did you learn from going through those interview processes um, you learn how to take a, a you know a 30,000 foot view at an organization and you learn kind of the role without doing it you learn the responsibilities of the GM, right? So you learn all of the, the departments that, are, that kind of fall underneath that baseball operations uh, umbrella, and you learn how to structure those departments because you have to articulate it. You have to put it down on paper. You have to be able to talk about it and talk about a vision. And so you have kind of a vision for each one of those seven or eight departments, depending on what the direction of your organization is and what you want to institute. For us, it's, it's eight departments. And so you, you become very organized, you know, because you're really, you know, collecting thoughts and you're putting outlines together and so on and so forth. The kind of the personal tone that comes out or the personal effects that kind of come out of those um, interviews is you really start to think about life after, right? So you, so in my, in my situation, you started to think about life after the Yankees that I might be leaving this organization at some point and how comfortable am I doing that? And is it because I loved working there, absolutely. And is this something I want to do? And so it allowed me to really, you know, almost selfishly go, what are the teams that I'm willing to walk away from a place that I love working? Um, and so I became more selective in my, my own mind of where I would want to, to go. And, and it, it just allows you to do that soul searching and go, where, what, what would be a team, what would be an organization that would be worth leaving where I'm at with people I love, city that I love, organization that I love, what's worth it? Um, and so it, you, you start to realize that, or at least in my case, I started to realize that um, not every single place would have been right for me at that moment in time. And uh, so I really started to kind of narrow that scope. You mentioned you grew up in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Was there any disappointment in not getting the Padres job, just given the chance to go home? Yeah, I mean, it would have been cool to be around family and friends. And, you know, it, fortunately, it, it turns out I ended up, you know, whatever, 65 miles farther right. north. And so it's, you know, six, six, one, half dozen, another. Everybody can still, everybody's sure. within striking distance in a, in a, a drive up the five. <laughs> um, so uh, California people in your the. the yeah. Take no one the, calls it the 95 in New York. <laughs> that's true. You're absolutely right. Um, so, uh, so yes. So, so it kind of worked out uh, to to be able to check that box and be close to family and friends, and, and you know, grew up a season ticket holder or mini season ticket holder to to Padre games. We split a, a full season among some families, and that would have been cool um, to to have that opportunity. But 
everything happens for a reason. And um, I ended up with an organization that I'm extremely excited to be a part of and in a community and a fan base and, and a brand that is, um, you know, fairly similar to, you know, those upper market teams and those, those, those big brand teams, you know, the angels are a big brand team, just like, just like the Yankees or just like the Cubs or just like the Red Sox, you know, they're a big brand. Um, and, and that, that's really cool for me. You worked for Brian for more than a decade. What did you learn most from him? Um, the value of time uh, and the value of patience and how to kind of use those um, use those in your decision-making and, and be pragmatic in your decision-making. Not make a decision within 24 hours if you can, if you can, if you can wait that long. Um, clearly some things, deals and in-season transactions, they happen quick and you have to move quick, but just to allow time to go by and, and watching Brian do that in that kind of environment and the expectations and the pressure that comes with that environment, if he can do that there, we clearly can do that in other places. Um, and so that, that was one of my biggest takeaways and his interaction with the media his interaction with agents, his interaction with, with the clubhouse and the players. Um, I've really tried to model a lot of myself um, in that, in, in, in my conversations, and be direct, be honest, um, and, and that's exactly what I want to do. It's funny you mentioned the media. That leads me to my next question. When you were the assistant GM, the Yankees made the decision to allow you to start speaking to the media. Mm-hmm. One of your first interviews... Got oh, yeah. hot water with the whole job of Chamberlain starter reliever controversy. I, I don't recall that at all. You don't recall it at all? No. I think I think about it. I bet you. I bet you six months doesn't go by without me thinking about it. <laughs> is I just saw job the other day, so we were talking about it. Uh, <laughs> is dealing with the media something that you need to learn how to do? Um, I think you're just learning people. I think that that that's generally it. You know. Um, you're aware of the message um, that you that you're you know trying to convey, um, and and you're aware that that you know the media has a job to do and they have a tough job to do, and so we're always very respectful. And again, what I've modeled or taken away from from that time in New York is respectful of the time, respectful of the job get to know people because it, these are relationships. These are relationships just like a relationship with, with a scout or a coach and so on and so forth. I mean, these are they're important relationships and they're people that have a job to do and a family and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I think that uh, it, it has been something that I've um, embraced and something I'm, I'm, I know is part of the job and part of the role. And, um, you know, again, to take part of those learning moments was the takeaway from, from Stick. And Stick said this to Cash a long, long, long time ago. And Cash said it to me, and then Stick said it to me as well. Never underestimate the power of no comment. And you do not have to answer every single question, but never lie. And that's kind of my takeaway. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinstein. 
Mike Sosa's been with the Angels for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. What's it been like working with him? It's been great. Um, he's a very thirsty, um, thirsty for knowledge, thirsty for learning. I mean, we have we have a, a one of a one of a bullet points within a you know kind of a, a standard that we have over here that's that's in the organization from top to bottom. One of the bullet points is is to remain committed to learning and growing and constantly evolving, and that's almost a mission that we have for everybody in this organization. Mike embodies that with this vast playing career and a very successful playing career. In fact, we like to go back. I dig through his. I dig through his stats a lot, and I said, "I don't know how you never ended up going to play in New York at some point because you were a perfect player for that. The on base, right? Were phenomenal on base and left-handed and pulled the ball. I mean, this was like this was a guy that fit over there. So I always joke with him about that. But but Mike's very, um, very, very savvy baseball man. Very intuitive. Uh, very intellectually curious. It's it's awesome, and and we talk every single day. I mean, my day starts. I get here. Let's call it eight o'clock in the morning. I I roll in at eight o'clock in the morning, and and my first two hours are down with Mike, and just you know talking a little bit about the day, talking a little bit about the previous day, talking a little bit about life, and and just in generalities, and and but uh, that relationship's very important to me. Um, and, uh, you know, getting to know Mike has been, um, it's been very eye-opening and, uh, he's a very, very savvy baseball man and, and very open to, to all of the new things that are coming into baseball, very open to them. Speaking of those new things, at this point, every team has an analytics department to some extent or mm-hmm. another. Uh, one GM told me that he's seen scouts actually beginning to take to analytics because some of these metrics are backing up the things that they've been seeing in a player for a long time. Uh, you once compared the scouting versus analytics debate to the East Coast, West Coast rap feud, which I enjoyed immensely. Was it important for that whole argument to end? I, I think so, because it's, it's a quest for information, right? And, and I look at a scouting report as data, right? It is. It's information coming in into the organization, and some of it is numerical data, and some of it is is done through a narrative and done through the, through the, you know, the summary of the report. But it's still a, it's still a data point for us, um, just as uh, let's just say uh, an exit velocity is a data point for us, or uh, a spin rate is a data point for us. These are all data points for us, and they're information that are going to contribute to decision making. And so, I you know, there are still environments where you know the 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 image of of the scout in the fedora. Um, in the in the you know the 55 Chevy or the 57 Chevy kind of driving through you know uh, Mexico and pulling a player that still happens right. absolutely that still happens um, as more information has come into our game and is accessible in the minor leagues and in the major leagues and in some cases even in college baseball you have to incorporate that data at least understand it and I, I think it's a, it feels like to me like it's a responsibility to know what is out there what's accessible um how you use that information um and whether you want whether you think that actually information is actionable or not because for every 10 things of data that come in you might only use two of them um but still kind of understanding that that the information game scouting reports analytic data 
all of those things are uh, are very important for decision making, in my opinion. You hired Jonathan Luman, who is an engineer for Boeing and Johns Hopkins University, the head of your analytics department. How important is it for you to have people with different, diverse backgrounds in your front office? I think about Houston, yeah. you know, a guy who worked for NASA and a guy who worked for Baseball Prospectus. You got mm-hmm. a real broad spectrum there. Absolutely. Is that important for you? Um, it, it was important for me to to bring someone in, in, in John's case, in John Luman's case, um, that had a lot of physics uh, kind of understanding because what I noticed was from those times in about the early 2000s and then the mid 2000s and then my, you know, kind of involvement in, in New York, um, and, and working so closely with fish, who's one of my closest, one of my closest friends, um, working so closely with him, I watched this evolution of advanced math and being a phenomenal mathematician, um, to an evolution into physics. And once once a lot of the kind of ball tracking data came into the game, so pitcher releases the baseball, we know trajectories and spins and angles and, and how that ball um, kind of, how that ball actually moves through air right. <laughs> to get to the mitt. So that's a physics aspect. And then, and then once that ball is struck, uh, what happens and what angle and velocities does it move off? And now you have this evolution with Statcast too. So now you know how does this player move and how to at what angles is he taking to the ball? All of those things kind of moved out of you know moved into into a physics arena. And so um, one of the guys that we had uh, working in New York, um, a guy David Grabner that works in the in the analytics department there, actually had this physics and, and worked in missile defense, as did John Lumen. And so I knew that their kind of understanding of modeling um, from a physics perspective was very important. And so that was somebody that we we targeted. And then when, during the interview process, he stood out, and it, um, I I had a sense for his background and what he could do. And I had some. People, you know, uh, Justin Hollander and Jonathan Strangio were interviewing with me because they were going to be able to ask a little bit more sophisticated questions than, than, than me, the guy who never took a physics class. Right. Um, so we went through it and, and evolved and, and settled on John and then started to build it from once we got him in place, then started to build the department and we have a department of six. So, but we've increased, we've increased our number of analytics and, and created a freestanding uh, department at the same time we've gone from 42 scouts when I got here to 49 scouts now. Um, so we're hiring more scouts. We're hiring more analysts. What we're doing is we're in an information race, and we're trying to supplement that information from both qualitative looks and quantitative analysis. And when we do that and, and become more thorough in that, uh, I think it'll just help our, help our decision-making. Do you think StatCast is changing the way that fans are looking at the game? Um, I would imagine. Yeah, I would imagine it is. Um, Especially, uh, you know, I mean, clearly, if you have an interest in those things, those resources are there and you have another way to look through the game. If you don't, you don't have to. And so I think it offers, um, it almost offers another item on the menu for the fans. And that's a good thing. Now that every team is caught up with analytics to some extent, do you think teams are out there looking for the next big thing, the next wave of Something that's going to give you a competitive advantage? I think a number of teams were looking at that, uh, at, at those things, even prior to every team being involved in analytics. I think there were teams in 
2005 to 2008 that were looking for what's next. You know, once they once they had a department built up and an analytics group built up and they were able to kind of stay on the cutting edge there from a physics or mathematics perspective, um, then it was what what's the next area that we can that we can um, kind of create a competitive advantage in. And there was some, you know, there was teams talking about it from like a development perspective and let's get more, let's get more teams in the farm systems and let's increase our player pools or let's, let's do things in an injury prevention standpoint and really try to understand, you know, the, the, from a physiological aspect, like the workload management of players and so on and so forth. So there's a number of things that teams can kind of focus their attention on. Let's let's focus on an emerging market and maybe move into another country now and, and grow baseball and try to get into, you know, you've, you've heard the, the whispers or, or ideas that have been spitballed of let's get into India or let's get into Brazil or, you know, let's look into countries that have big demographics and, you know, play sports, you know, in India's case, play sports similar to baseball and so on and so forth or, or Brazil, you know, sort of doesn't have a huge, uh, you know, besides besides soccer, there isn't this outpouring. Well, now soccer and MMA, but like, doesn't have this huge outpouring of of, you know, there's not eight national sports there that that are that you know that that people are choosing from, and so demographically that could be a good place, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of areas that people look and and almost dip their toe in to see will this have an effect like analytics has had an effect. And so I think teams are always looking for that. Last year, Mike Trapp said of you, quote, he comes around the clubhouse every day, talks to us, you can joke around with him, tell him anything, that's how GM should be, interact with the players, come in and act like part of the team. Is that important to you? I don't know any other way. It, it, it feels, um, it doesn't feel like it's part of me to not go in and say, what's up to the guys and, and, be around. I'm, I I do I do go into the clubhouse um, on a daily basis. Um, I go in approximately let's call it two thirty, maybe two thirty to three thirty. Might might grab a workout in there. Might not. Uh, <laughs> but but I'll definitely go down and 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 check in with the coaches. Say hello to those guys. Um, and then I swing through after the game. After every game, uh, win or loss, just kind of my you know what I watch Brian do. Um, and so I model it after cash. Um, and I don't go into the player locker room area. Um, so I leave that for them. So the oval or the square or whatever right. the, you know, whatever the geometric shape whatever is. Whatever your setup is. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't, I don't go in there. But if I see them in the lounge or see them in the training room or weight room or whatever, yeah, definitely like that interaction with the guys. I, I told the group last year when they got here that uh, I would be accessible, um, and I'd be visible and, Come good or bad, whatever our outcome, you will always see me. And uh, I thought that was important for me. And I, like I said, I, I really don't know another way. During your time in New York, you got to watch some pretty legendary players on a daily basis. Derek Jeter, House, Rodriguez, Mariano Rivera, etc. What's it like watching Mike Trout every day? Uh, it's similar. Um, you know, when you see guys, whether it was, whether it was Jeter, Rod, or... Mo or Andy or Sato, and when you see guys that can slow the game down, um, and I was using this analogy yesterday, you know, when you see a situation like Mike Trout sliding and sliding head first, which always makes GMs and coaching and field people uh, hold their breath, and 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 sliding in and maneuvering himself around tags, it's the game just moves slower for some individuals, and I I watched it. It sure maybe it wasn't moving slow for Derek, 
but it sure looked like it was. Right. Maybe it wasn't moving slow for Mo, but it looked like it was. And it's the same thing with Mike. It looks like the game moves slow for him. Um, yeah, he's he's really he's fun to watch. The internet is always rumbling with talk about whether the Angels would be better off trading Mike yeah. uh, for a Hall of Players, sort of a Herschel Walker type deal. How hard would it be to part with the best player in the game before he's even in his prime years, no matter what the return would be? I think it would be extremely difficult. Uh, I think first finding, you know, how do you even find, how do you begin to quantify uh, a, an equivalent package? And I think that's really difficult to do. I mean, we can go back in time and grab, you know, uh, let's call it the 2010 top 100 list, right? How many of those top 100s nailed it, right? Um, how many were they? position players, were they pitchers, so on and so forth, and then how many does each organization have within that top 100, and what is the hit rate, and so on and so forth, and I think you just, you're putting yourself in a, in a really tough spot, and if you're sitting on elite, like the top of the game, I, I don't think you can find that equivalent package, especially when you're talking about multi, multi years of control too. This isn't, this isn't you know the end. The end of the tunnel isn't here, so I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's something that that you can find an equivalency for. I mean, the great barroom debate is always: you could start your team with one player. Who would it be? You have that player, and right. he's twenty-five years old. Twenty-five. Yeah. You know, it seems like he'd be the ideal guy to build your team around. Right. So, what would be the? You know, I guess the theory of why, why would you What's trade return? Right. right. Yeah. If you're looking for the guy to build your team around, you have him already. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you, yeah, do you get do you, do you get player? Uh, so if, if if he's the if to use your barroom example, if he's the one that people say that's that's one. Okay, who who's who's runner up in that conversation, and then who's the runner up to that person, and who's the runner up to that person? Well, you're not going to get two, three, four, five, six, seven. You right, know what I mean? Right. If you can trade, <laughs> you can trade Mike for, you know, Stanton, Goldschmidt, and, uh, uh, and and Machado, maybe you'd have to think about it. But they Your words, I don't even but play with it. But they all play for different teams, so you can't do anything about that. Your words, I'm not of even course, going there. Of course, of course. Um, you know, I remember when the, when the Yankees traded Austin Jackson and Curtis Granderson, and everybody said, well, how could you make that deal? And they said, well, if Austin Granderson, I mean, if Austin Jackson turns into Curtis Granderson, that's that's... All you could hope for, so now you get Curtis Granderson. Right. You know, it's sort of like, yeah. you know, trading. You you hope this guy turns into that guy, but you can get that guy. So and that that's a little bit also into clubs looking. And you know, I I know that I've read pieces about about windows, right? And that's that's a, a circumstance where a club's looking into a window at that moment in time and saying, okay, here we are. Uh, we we're just coming off of a World Series in, in you know in New York and. And this club is together, and what's the best way to supplement that club? And we go grab left-handed power with a swing built for the stadium, uh, with with solid average to above average defense, and our you know the estimation of our scouts and our analytics and everybody that, that contributed to that deal. And it was a tough one. I mean, it was one that that really you lost some sleep over. I don't. I mean, at least I know I did because uh, it was going on at the winter meetings, and my room was right across from Cash's. I don't know if he lost sleep over it, but I know I did. Um, and and I remember you know going through that you know going through that that time period and that process, and ultimately, um, you know it was a, it was a trade that that worked out for the Yankees in 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 those years and being able to, you know. 
put together a club from 9, 10, 11, 12 that was, you know, 95 wins, I think was the low, maybe, um, and maybe 93, but, um, you know, we were winning a lot of games and that was, that was a, that was a good moment for us to be able to drop something in to play center field for us and have that impact right away. You have another all-time great in your lineup here, Albert Pujols, 37, he's past what most people would consider his prime, but how much of a force do you still expect him to be in your lineup this year? Um, absolutely expect him to be a force. Uh, there's, he's just such an intelligent hitter. Um, he, he picks things up so quickly and knows how pitchers are trying to attack him and so on and so forth. And just that batter's box knowledge, that batter's box IQ is elite, you know, it's next level in this, in this game. And obviously quickness and ability to impact the baseball and lift the baseball. And I mean, you're looking at a guy that's, you know, it, because of shifts, because of of less foot speed than than five years ago, eight years ago, will a batting average suffer because of that? Yes, it will. There's more shifts. They take shifts are taking away batting average. There's no question. Um, and and shifts will you know in that case is the fact that the the ball is fielded on the infield, and now you know they have a probability of throwing Albert out. So that's going to hurt the batting average a little bit, but it doesn't hurt the impact and the exit velocity and how he can lift the baseball and put the baseball in the seats. That's still there. And while that threat is present and real, it creates anxiety for opposing pitchers. There's no question about it. Garrett Richards elected last year not to undergo Tommy John surgery for his torn UCL, partially torn UCL. Rehabbed at stem cell therapy uh, on his elbow instead. Seems to be working. Did your experience with Masahiro Tanaka in New York keep you optimistic that this was a reasonable option? And I know everybody's elbows aren't the same and their injuries aren't the same, but normally people here torn UCL and it's Tommy John. And any any time you you get evidence um, of a of a procedure um, working, um, then then yeah, it contributes into into some optimism. That it might work in in this case and is and is worth a shot. Um, so going the conservative care route, um, you know, is is right now Garrett feels great and he's able to throw with a custom velocity and the secondary pitches are are behaving and and showing the integrity, um, you know, that they that they deserve that those pitches, you know, have warranted to be out pitches and so on and so forth. I mean, everything looks looks fairly complete or or complete at this moment in time. So. Um, yeah, the, the experiences that, that whether it's Tanaka or whether it's, you know, other guys that have gone the conservative care route, those do weigh into kind of a, a you know, a, a conservative optimism, so to speak. But, uh, but yeah, they definitely, they definitely go into the equation. You added Cameron Maven, Ben Revere in the outfield this year, Danny Espinosa in the infield. Given the holdovers you already had, Trout, CJ Cron, Angel Simmons, how much better do you expect your defense overall to be this year? I mean, m- my hope is that it's the best in baseball. Um, I think with with putting, you know, arguably, you know, the best double play combination um, in baseball together at short and second, um, in grabbing, you know, Martin Maldonado, who we see as an elite defender um, behind the plate, uh, game call, game management, throwing, receiving, all of the things that kind of encompass, and essentially running two center fielders in the outfield and a gold glover in right field in Cole Calhoun, who's, you know, from, from our kind of takeaways as spring looks like he's moving even better. 
Um, and I know he spent a lot of time on, on conditioning and, and, and kind of a, a little bit of a change training program in the wintertime from, from an agility perspective. I expect us to have one of the best, if not the best, defensive outfield in baseball. And so when you start putting all of those combinations together and you traditionally honor it up the middle defense and the outfield defense, knowing that we're going to be in, in an environment, too, that more balls stay in play, stay inside the yard than in, than in the average ballpark. And if 115, 125 of our games fall in those types of environments, there's going to be a lot of balls to run down and catch um, in the outfield, and, and I think we're going to be able to do that. You have two experienced closers in your bullpen in Houston Street and Andrew Bailey. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people point to Cam Bedrosian as your best reliever. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the overall state of the bullpen? Um, I think that the pieces are here in this camp um, to put together a, a competitive, solid, average bullpen. Um, I know that Cam's evolving, and and you know he's got some. He's bringing serious weapons to the fight. Um, and Andrew Bailey, you know, you're in a, a situation with guys that, you know, and Andrew and in Houston Street, guys that don't scare in big situations. They've been there, they've been tested, and so on and so forth. And, the, and that experience kind of imparts itself on, on the other guys in, the, in that bullpen. Jose Alvarez was great last year. J.C. Ramirez has been lights out in both roles. He's been starting this spring for us and, you know, has, has been – you know, bumping 99 regularly as a starter. And, and uh, you know, I think that there's there's components here for us to be able to do things uh, both in the rotation and in the, and in the, uh, and in the bullpen and miss bats and make big pitches and, and uh, you know, get our way through, through, uh, through high leverage innings. How do you rate your farm system right now? Going up, um, <laughs> is that is that obvious since we were rated, what, 30th, I think, a year ago, maybe at this time? I think that's what they're Nowhere else podcast. to go, right? Um, moving in the right direction, we have become very um, aggressive in, in looking at players that are out on waiver wires, released from other organizations. I mean, we have almost had to open up a lab, so to speak, to bring guys in and see how we, um, you know, see if we can if we can accentuate something or 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 take some chances um, to see if we can we can help supplement uh, you know a farm system that you know I like um, where some of you know I like where it's headed um, and I like you know having Mike Gallego and Mike Lacasa and, and Eric Chavez is playing a huge role in our our farm system and and. Jack Howell, who's you know our field coordinator, and, and bringing being able to bring in new guys, and at last year hiring Jose Molina, and then bringing Jeremy Reed in, and just really bringing on a lot of experience in that farm system too. Um, I'm optimistic for where it, where it's where it's headed, and 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 hopeful for where it's going to end up. Last one: How do you assess the state of the American League West? Um, it is going to be a very competitive division, and uh, I had a. a GM friend of mine tell me who's not in this division say I think you could make a case that four clubs could could win that division. Um, so we'll see what ultimately comes out. But um, but yeah, it, it's gonna be it's it's gonna be a tough division. It's gonna come down to the end. Billy, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Mark.